The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, get a read on the Russian economy as we enter autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, and we look at diplomacy in the United Nations. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 20th of September, day 209. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, and our new Economics Editor, Sue Chan. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. In terms of the the fronts in uh, in Ukraine, two big things to, to talk about. Firstly, uh, the first village in Luhansk Oblast has been retaken by Ukraine. So a village called Belogrovka. It's about 10 miles, about 15 k's west of Lysychansk, uh, Severodonetsk, so that kind of area. Um, now, f- what little imagery we've seen of it, I mean, there's not an awful lot left of the village. It is basically a a position it's it's not it, it confers no great um semi urban environment from which to attack or or defend because it's just been blasted over the last the last few months but it is very significant in as much as it is it is a piece of territory in Luhansk now if you remember putin has said that after being pushed out from the north in the first first few months of the war he said actually this the whole point was to in his words liberate the donbass uh, donbass comprising of luhansk and donetsk oblasts the regions and and so any and so russia's never been able to take the entirety of the donbass it, it it did quite quickly move through the luhansk region but it never took more than about 55% of donetsk and still hasn't so any any claim to have liberated in his words the donbass is just it just falls flat at this point. And the more that Ukraine can do to undermine that idea, the more uh, um, Putin loses credibility at home. If the whole point was to liberate the Donbass and he's not able to do that, then what's the what's the fight for? So any ground that uh, Ukraine is able to, to take back is very, very significant, especially as the whole of the Luhansk Oblast had been taken. So Russia was able to say, see, you know, we are we are moving on. That's a major milestone in the in the in the direction of travel in this uh, in this campaign. So for for Ukraine to now start nibbling back into the Luhansk region, that is that is very significant. Uh, as I said, it's not not so much the the size of the piece of ground that they've taken, or what great tactical advantage it confers, because there's not not a huge amount of that, I don't think. Looking at uh, what little I know of the geography there, but it, the the fact that it is it is inside Luhansk Oblast, so that is that is significant. Um, the other thing to also uh, um, oh, just just while we're on that, actually, we might we might come back to this a little bit later, but there's long been chat about. Um, referenda being held in Luhansk and Donetsk region for these for these areas to, to have a referendum um, and to and to then become part of Russia. Now it's all been uh, the, the dates were set or dates were muted and then uh, and then it all, it all slipped and it's not uh, the security situation i.e. Russia being put on the back foot meant that it, it was not possible to do that. There are conflicting reports out today. So the administrative um, or the the, uh, the 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 administrative 
body of Luhansk has said that, that a date for the referendum has been set. This, this coming Friday to next Tuesday, the 23rd to the 27th of September, on Donetsk, the self-styled Donetsk People's Republic have also said that they are going to be um, holding the referendum in, in that time. That was reported in Russia, Russian media. However, TASS, the, the Russian um, state um, media outlet, is reporting that uh, Roger Mirashik, who is the, self, again, self-styled uh, Luhansk People's Republic ambassador to Russia, um, he's saying it's too early to speculate about dates. He said the quote was the situation was still unsafe. He said there's been uh, shelling just last night, which hit a number of hospitals. This is his 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 views, his words reported by TASS. And he said this was Ukraine's reaction to the proposed referendum. So we're not entirely sure what's happening. If there is going to be one, if there's not, it will be significant. We'll, we'll probably talk about this later on, because if those regions were claimed by Russia in some sham referendum, they would then use this to 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 adjust their narrative that Ukraine is attacking Mother Russia and, and any attack into those regions now would be would be an international you know, crossing an international border not that that stopped them in the first place but it would just it would just seek Russia is seeking to to shift the whole framework of this war by holding these referenda but we might come back to that the second tactical update you need to be aware of this comes from today's UK defense intelligence report they're saying that the black sea fleet russia's black sea fleet has quote almost certainly unquote moved their kilo class submarines these are hunter killer submarines so not nuclear armed but um, hunter killer attack submarines from sevastopol in crimea to novorossiysk in southern russia um, and they are assessing that was in the face of increased uh, long-range strike, basically long-range um, high Mars and multiple launch rocket system, long, long-range artillery and missile um, capability from uh, from Ukraine. And the the defense intelligence estimate is saying uh, guarantee this is a quote guaranteeing the Black Sea Fleet's Crimea base was likely one of Putin's motivations for annexing Crimea in 2014. So, if they are moving out, moving a very significant resource such as their kilo class subs. Then, then it, uh, that is that is noteworthy. You remember that there was a drone strike in Crimea on the the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in August, and of course we had the Saki airbase attack as well a few weeks ago. So, as Ukraine have been able to bring Crimea into range and start to have an effect there, not only is it having um, having a, a sort of moral effect, if you like, those images that we all saw going around the Russian telegram channels and other social media channels of explosions in the Saki airbase and those massive queues, those long long queues of traffic to get off the peninsula uh, out of Crimea, then um, it's also very definitely having a having a an operational effect as well if the if the kilo class subs are having to be pulled back. I mean it's about 100 k's the, the distance so about 100 k's further east which isn't massive in terms of uh, in terms of distance covered that's you know a day a couple of days really to, to cover that distance if if need be. But, I mean, how much infrastructure is there, is there in, in Nov- Novorossiysk? I mean, bear in mind that you can't just go and pole up these submarines anywhere. They've got to be fueled. They've got to be looked after. They've got to be um, rearmed. Um, the crews have got to uh, live somewhere. The whole logistics function, that's one of the reasons why Sevastopol was so important to Russia, in that it was all there. So quite how, how ready this new base is in Russia to host the, uh, the kilo-class subs, we don't know. But it is a significant move if they've had to had to move a, a major piece of military capability um, further away and, in fact, off Crimea. And uh, as, as it's the first day back, I will indulge myself and I'll take a pause there. 
Thank you very much. Dom, Francis, can we come to you? Um, Zooming out of uh, the news from Ukraine, Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, is heading to New York um, and she's made the news talking about British support for Ukraine. Can you just give us the details of what she's been talking about? Yes, well, thank you, David, and good afternoon, everyone. As you say, an interesting period we can expect in the coming days. Liz Truss has gone to the UN General Assembly, which is the first time it's met for three years. As you say, it is hosted in New York. And we've already had an announcement from her, from the British Prime Minister, vowing to maintain spending on military aid to Ukraine. This is significant because no other country has quite said explicitly that it will maintain the current levels of spending or indeed exceed them uh, in the long term. And so this is clearly a statement of intent from the British government's perspective to say to the world at this very significant diplomatic meeting that uh, it is fully intending uh, of supporting Ukraine in the months, possibly even years ahead. We're expecting there to be uh, senior meetings held with Joe Biden, obviously US President Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen as part of that meeting. And it's obviously coming on the back of political activities resuming after the period of national mourning here in Britain for the late Queen. And it's it's strange that they're now all in New York because they were most of them here yesterday for the funeral of Elizabeth II. Liz Truss has also made some interesting remarks as part of this announcement. She said, quote, Ukraine's victories in recent weeks have been inspirational. Time and again, these brave people have defied the doubters and showed what they can do when given the military, economic and political support they need. My message to the people of Ukraine is this. The UK will continue to be right behind you every step of the way. Your security is my security. And that last sentence, I think, is particularly important emphasising this argument that we've discussed at length on this podcast for many months now, which is that Ukraine is now seen as integral, not only for on this question of its own sovereignty, but integral to the whole of, of Western security and particularly in the European context. And clearly Liz Truss, the foreign, for, former foreign secretary, understands that. But just zooming out even further and looking at the uh, General Assembly in the UN. I know Dom is going to write for the Dispatches newsletter tomorrow on this, so do keep an eye out for that. But there's already been some interesting fireworks that have taken place in the last 24 hours when essentially protocol dictates that those who address the forum have to do so in person. Now, obviously, Zelensky has argued that he couldn't meet this requirement because of the fact that there is a war in Ukraine and that he will not want to be leaving the country. So as a consequence of this, the General Assembly took a vote on whether President Zelensky could make an address by video. And this motion has actually is very interesting because we're able to see which countries are aligning with Russia on wanting to bar President Zelensky from speaking and those who have abstained. There's also 19 countries that abstained, but the most important one of those is China. So the the failure of Russia's supposed ally to vote against the motion is, of course, significant. It's a snub, in short, and uh, I think showing a message of uh, to to Putin that that China is essentially not supportive of this war 
equally damning are on the list of countries that have supported President Zelensky being able to speak, of which there were 101. And some of those that might have been expected to support Russia have not done so. So Kazakhstan, Serbia, Hungary. It's all suggestive of a shift away from Russia, from where we were with those UN votes back after the initial invasion in February, where there was more abstentions, more support for Russia. It seems that some of that is trickling away. And it all speaks to, as we talked about at length last week, that Moscow's diminished influence that uh, was on display in uh, with these meetings with, with China. And just one last point on that. I think it's very significant that Armenia and Azerbaijan, who have obviously had this recent outbreak of violence, they are in conversations with the United States who are trying to broker some sort of uh, peace deal. The fact that it's the US trying to convene that rather than Russia, and it would have been Russia's traditional role as those being former Soviet states, is also important as America is clearly moving in that uh, that space that's been left behind uh, by, by Russia's diminishing influence. So early days with the UN summit, it's not even really started yet, but already considerable things that we can learn from it and no doubt we'll be discussing it over the rest of the week well thank you very much for that francis dom i know you've got a couple more uh, brief updates for us and then we'll go to suchan yeah just very quickly because we've been talking about them uh, recently so isium the, the town uh, taken back by ukraine in the lightning advance last weekend a major town to the sort in the sort of south of that of that advance the mass burial site that was that's been discovered there has continued to be worked on by international investigators. The latest is that they have found 440 graves, um, including the bodies of children. And President Zelensky has made a statement saying that, uh, quote, in his words, clear and verified, unquote, information will be released on Friday about um, about the discoveries there. The only other thing to note is that there's a prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine. 200 prisoners from either side apparently are going to be swapped. This is as a President Erdogan of Turkey made this announcement. He's been brokering this deal. He sees himself as very much able to speak to both camps. Well, he is, is very much able to speak to both camps. Um, but of course, interestingly, Turkey is also supplying Ukraine with the Barakta drones. But Erdogan is is there in, in the middle. He was at the um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization um uh, meeting last last week, meeting Putin. So he made these comments on US TV saying that, that there's going to be uh, 200 prisoners swapped. We don't know from where, so if this is anything to do with the Azovstal plant in Mariupol, for example, we don't know where these prisoners have come from. Um, and that's a, that's a very nice round figure, 200. So expect some changes there. And we have no date for this to happen, but we just need to, need to note that um, uh, and move on. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom and Francis. Um, Su Chan, um, welcome to the podcast. I think this is your first uh, time. Uh, congratulations on joining The Telegraph. Um, you are a new economics editor, and we haven't had anybody from our business desk on for a while. So I was wondering if you could just give us a bit of an update as to the current state of the Russian economy and also talk a little bit about uh, how Russia is, how, how Russia is um, selling quite a lot of its energy to China. I think that'd be of huge interest to our listeners. Yeah, well, thank thank you very much for for having me and for everyone uh, for being here today. I mean, yeah, a lot's happened since the start of the war, and I, I think it's worth sketching out the sort of shape of Russia's economy and what drives it. I mean, Russia is basically a one trick 
pony and Russia's fortune um, in this war is pretty much linked A, to the price of energy, B, to the EU's uh, response to switching away from that energy and C, whether Russia can actually find a new home for that energy. I think it's fair to say in in the first, certainly at the the start of the war when energy prices did spike and we saw massive increases. We have a Bloomberg terminal here and I think they actually changed the scale on some of the graphs here to see, you know, big spikes in energy prices as, you know, countries, you know, not just in Europe, around the world were wondering where are we going to get our energy from and how much will we have to pay for it? And Russia was very much the beneficiary of that in the first hundred days of this war, we saw um, Russia earn around a billion dollars a day uh, just from raking in the profits of higher um, oil and gas prices. And and it's worth remembering that Russia, you know, um, oil and gas revenues account for more than a third of the nation's budget. So it is, you know, it very much reaps the rewards of um, soaring oil and gas prices. And as you, as you say, you know, going forward, I think, you know, we've seen... Um, Russia's economy fare better than expected. I think that is fair to say as well. I mean, Russia's central bank um, put out estimates at the start of the year and it was pretty bleak. You know, we were looking at a very deep recession, inflation in double digits, the ruble uh, tumbled to record lows, which was also stoking inflation. But, you know, just last week, um, the central bank was saying that the economy actually won't shrink in double digits. We'll probably see um, the economy shrink by about 3% this year. Um, and inflation's come down, they reduced their expectations of price rises, and that enabled them to cut interest rates, um, which it hadn't been able to do. I mean, interest rates went up to, I think, 20% um, in the couple of months following the start of the invasion, uh, and, and they're now down to 7.5%. And um, and that, that highlights two things, you know, the, the stronger ruble due to Russia's uh, ability to stay afloat because of uh, soaring energy prices, but also the, the countries need to boost growth because, as I mentioned, you know, it is a um, one trick pony and it needs to find a, a different home for, for its energy. I mean, prior to the invasion, it was sending about three million barrels of oil a day into the EU market. So the EU uh, uses about 11 million barrels of oil a day. So about a third of Europe's energy needs were met by Russia. And the EU has said, look, we're not going to be importing any of uh, that crude oil um, anymore. And uh, from next February, we also um, won't be importing sort of the, the stuff that, you know, is made by crude oil, so petrol and, and diesel and other refined products. So, you know, Russia has a question to ask itself is where is our oil going to go? And it's not just the EU that said, you know, we're not going to buy from you guys anymore. We've seen countries in Asia, South Korea, Japan, they've said, look, we're going to reduce our imports to zero. The US obviously has already reduced its imports to zero. So that that accounts for another million um, barrels a day from from those three countries. So it's four million um, barrels a day that, you know, need to find a new home. And as you mentioned, China is one of the customers because, you know, Russia needs to sell their stuff at a discount now. So China has been um, one of the customers that's at, front, at the front of the queue, just to give an idea of, you know, how much they were buying. So they were buying about 1.5 million uh, barrels a day from Russia uh, before before the invasion. And um, last month they snapped up closer to 1.8 
million barrels a day. And they are spending much more. I mean, um, China is Russia's uh, biggest single country trading partner. So Russia's biggest sort of block is the EU. But in terms of a single country, China is its biggest customer. And we've seen just today, you know, uh, Chinese data showing that um, China's spending a record amount on Russian energy. It's getting a lot of it on the cheap. Obviously, China is still the world's factory and it needs energy to get all those uh, products out to you and I and, and, and customers around the world. So um, we've seen, you know, the country's total energy spend rise to $44 billion in the last six months. Um, so China's definitely, you know, a, a source for that Russian energy. But, you know, I, I, I've been reading notes from, from analysts and, um, you know, that there is a lot of oil out there and, and Saudi Arabia is still um, selling a lot to China, and you know, no, nobody's ever sold um, more than uh, a fifth. So there, there's a statistic that you know, no one's ever um, Russia's never sold, or not even Saudi Arabia has sold more than twenty percent of, of 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 its oil to to, to China. So you know, this, this idea that you know China's going to buy everything, it, it's a myth, and it is a slow process and a slow pivot because because of course if China's buying more from Russia it's got to buy less from other countries and there is that competition and obviously there's a diplomatic element um, to that as well. Thank you very much for that Sue that was that was fascinating and I think a really good um, overview of how the Russian economy has been impacted so far. Could Would you be able to sort of project a little forward so the, the economy so far has survived but there are worrying signs for its future and, and before we came on air we, we talked a little bit about how sometimes it's very difficult to know who to trust and to get a, a, an accurate picture of, of the state of the Russian economy. Um, could you talk a little bit, bit about that as well? Yeah, of course. So as a journalist, you're always looking for sources of news. And I must, you know, go without saying Russia's probably not the most reliable source of data at the best of times. But some of those bits of data that we're used to seeing come out of the statistics office from the finance ministry, they're not there anymore. So, you know, pieces of data that used to come out every month, they, they're sort of cherry picking what they want to tell us. So it's very hard to unpick exactly what's going on. I mean, the central bank has said, oh, don't worry, you know, we're not going to shrink as much as we thought. And, you know, prices aren't rising as much as we thought. But who knows what's actually going on? And, and there have actually been leaked reports coming out of the uh, Kremlin saying that actually, you know, Russia's finance ministry has drawn up scenarios about how bad it could get. And, you know, one of the scenarios is the Russian economy just doesn't get back up to its pre-war size until at least the end of the decade. And, you know, th that causes problems because, you know, if living standards aren't rising in a country, you know, that, that already is having you know, restrictions in, in terms of airport um, imports, sorry. Um, a lot of companies have pulled out of, of the country. So, you know, we're going to see the Russian economy change uh, immensely over the next few years. I mean, I, I, I wrote a piece over the weekend and I, I was talking to some analysts about, you know, what could we see? You know, is this going to be a new Iran? And because, you know, the, the, the shape and size of these sanctions you know, some of which we've never seen before. And some people are saying, look, you know, one thing, you know, R R Russia doesn't make stuff. It digs the stuff out of the ground that other people need to make stuff. And so that 
you know, th- this idea that Russia is going to turn into an autarky that's going to be self-sufficient, you know, perhaps in terms of food, but in terms of making things, it is still reliant on, yes, countries like China. So what does Russia buy from China? So uh, China buys, you know, energy from Russia. Russia buys um, cars, uh, mobile phones, and it's going to be doing a lot more of that. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the car makers that we're used to seeing on our roads, like Volkswagen, they've pulled out of the country. Mobile phone makers, Apple, they're no longer sending their iPhones into the country. So, you know, Russians are going to be buying more Chinese phones, more Chinese cars, um, and using more Chinese technology. And, uh, you know, that, that has knock-on effects because, you know, everyone's looking... Um, at semiconductors now so semiconductors are the sort of um, the brains behind everything from you know your smart tv to microwaves to you know more sophisticated computers and you know cars the the more electronics than sort of um, you know engine passing cars these days and and people saying you know if you can't get those semiconductors because China's not um, you know at the cutting edge of this technology they very much relies on um, you know, the US, also Taiwan to sort of um, the mainland very much relies on Taiwan to sort of, you know, get those brains into the stuff that it makes. And, you know, if, if Russia can't do that, we, we, you know, we're looking at sort of rewinding the clock. You know, people were saying, you know, what, what sort of devices will be we will we be listening to? And someone said, oh, you know, in the 90s, it was all about the Walkman. <laughs> so it, it's sort of very much rewinding the clock in, in, in Russia. And there have been other reports where, you know, Russia can no longer import some of the basic things they need for their cars, like anti-lock braking system, airbags. So, you know, Russia has had to change its regulations to enable cars to drive off forecourts without these things. You know, and, and someone joked to me, you know, you need to be a Formula One driver just to go to the shops these days um, because, you know, Russia just can't get these parts. So if Russia wants to become self-reliant, it's going to have a really tough time. And, you know, that's going to have implications for growth, for living standards. And ultimately, you know, if you take a flight to Moscow 10 years from now, it's going to be a fundamentally changed economy. Well, thank you so much for that. Again, again, fascinating. Um, One more question from me before I'll open it now to Francis and Dom to come in with some ideas and thoughts of their own. Um, One of the big things in the news in the last few months has been uh, how Western countries are trying to reduce their dependence on Russian energy. could you talk a little bit about this? How How is Europe ma- managing this and are they close to succeeding? They are storing up for winter. So everyone's behaving like a squirrel. So uh, Germany, which used to uh, rely on Russia for half its gas needs, it's putting a lot of that in storage and it's actually ahead um, of its target. So uh, I think they're 90%. Um, Germany, again, you know, um, they've um, announced three sort of multi-billion euro finance packages to help citizens. So they're, you know, they're giving extra payments to students, they're giving extra payments to pensioners, they've cut VAT for hospitality businesses. You know, France has just said, hey, we're just going to cap the price of energy. Um, So there's support coming on all different forms. uh, And obviously, you know, um, it's unprecedented. And we're going to also have a package here on Friday where Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor, is going to announce a package of of tax cuts to go along their sort of cap in um, unit uh, energy costs for for the average household. So the average household won't pay more than um, £2,500 on their their energy bills for the next two years. And obviously businesses are are also going to get extra help, which is going to be announced tomorrow in terms of the UK. So uh, in terms of 
government action. They, they're storing more gas and they're spending more. And, you know, a few years ago, Russia, you know, I mean, Germany, excuse me, the, 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 everyone talks about them being obsessed with this sort of Schwarzenegger, this black zero, this balanced budget. Well, those rules have not quite gone out the window, but, you know, everyone's certainly taking a more relaxed attitude about borrowing. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sue. I'll go to Francis and Dom just for anything you'd like to add or any, any extra updates to do to do with this that you think is important for our listeners to hear. Well, I just reiterate that this point about the shape of the Russian economy in the long term. And as we spoke about at length last week, there is a real, I think, chance now that the West will not want to invest in Russia in the long term for all sorts of reasons. And as a consequence of that, they will become more and more reliant on China, not only for purchasing its energy, but indeed there will be opportunities for China to essentially buy out certain Russian industries and business streams, etc., which could mean, as we were debating, uh, I think it was on Friday, that that Russia becomes something of of a a kind of vassal state of China. Now, as I say, there are huge risks from that within the Western perspective, that if, as we've been talking about at length in the past, we're seeing the tectonic plates of geopolitics shifting and the... Uh, into into the blocks of autocracies and, and democracies. If that is the case, then, of course, the real long-term threat is, is, is China's rise. And will you really want to have a client state of China on the European doorstep? If the answer is no, then there may well be a strong incentive from Western powers and Western governments to try and actually bring Russia back into the fold, which would mean additional investment, which would mean working with them. But what would the red lines be for that to be the case? What would you be saying to Russia that would enable or which would mean that you would be willing to deal with them once again after the heinous acts that we've seen in Ukraine? Those red lines would surely have to be uh, certain ones about introducing democracy, of course, getting rid of Putin, going without that goes without saying. So all sorts of, of machinations will be being debated at the moment that are thinking not only months ahead, but years ahead. And, and indeed, in thinking of this in, in terms of possibly even decades ahead, because ultimately the, the consequences of this of this conflict, whatever happens in, in the short term, the real ramifications are those about how Russia is viewed and how Russia's role in the world is diminished and what that means for its long term relationship, not only with China, but other autocratic regimes around the world. Thanks, Francis. Dom, I know you've got a, a question for Sue. Yeah, please. Um, so you mentioned that a lot of economic data from Russia are missing, have, have not been updated recently. And so obviously, we, you know, we, we don't know what, what they can be. It's probably not going to be great news, but uh, we don't know the detail there. However, even even without that, I think, are we able to take a view on on what it might indicate? So that, so the areas of data that are missing, are you able to draw out from that and see what what, what might it indicate of the, um, of the of the Russian economy, hence that they're trying to to hide giving the details? Bits and pieces. So, you know, uh, it's very selective at the moment. I mean, independently, I think it is fair to say that the Russian economy has held up better than we thought, um, you know, because of 
high energy prices. And, you know, we've um, seen various reports from Gazprom, um, which is obviously state backed, saying that, you know, we're going to make more money than we ever have before. So we know that Russian finances are in an, a better state than we thought. But we also know that Russia is burning through some of its cash reserves. So we know that Russia's huge uh, war chest of um, uh, of money or its budget surplus, they are burning through that in order to support the economy. We do know that. And, you know, in some cases, we are relying on um, people within Russia who are obviously not content with what's going on. And we have had a lot of leaks from um, various ministries and, and reports um, and it's all unnamed and it's all sort of attributed to sort of unnamed sources. But, you know, it, it is pretty reliable in terms of, you know, documents once we follow the paper trail. Russia's government, the Kremlin, is worried. Um, that's fair to say. And, um, you know, the government will continue to cherry pick its data but i mean it's very clear russia is not a diverse economy it does not have lots of places to go and and, and going back to this idea that you know will china ride to the rescue i think the answer is no i mean you know china is a very big part of russia's trade but in terms of you know who china trades with They've got much bigger fish to fry, as it were, as in, you know, uh, the US is a massive trade partner. The EU is a massive trade partner. And, you know, th th there was also talk about red lines and China will not ultimately want to, you know, overstep those red lines if it jeopardizes its sort of, you know, trillions of dollars of trade with other nations. Um, and so I think, you know, as, as, as one analyst put it to me last week, you know, will China throw Vladimir, you know, Putin under the bus? Probably not. But at the same time, it doesn't have much to, to, to gain from, you know, looking to Russia for everything. And, and yes, they want to deepen their ties. But I think, you know, there are limits to that. Well, thank you, Francis. And thank you, Sue. Um, before we finish, Francis, you've mentioned you've been doing some reading on uh, Russian strategy and some thinking about, about that. Would you like to take us through what, what you've been seeing? Sure. Well, I just wanted to come back to the topic that Dom mentioned at the beginning about this referendum that we've heard announced in Luhansk. Now, it tallies with another development that's taken place in recent hours. And we are really only talking recent hours for both announcements, uh, which is the Russia... Russian Duma has unilaterally created a legal framework for declaration of war and mobilization, essentially saying to uh, Putin that it would support a, uh, a, a formal declaration of war and mobilization against Ukraine if it were asked of it by the president. Now, the timing of that and this referendum is definitely not a coincidence. This is clearly marking a shift in the Russian strategy thinking in the next weeks ahead and, and indeed months ahead as, we, as uh, winter arrives. The former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, has said that it is essential that Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine carry out referendums um, that would see their regions join Russia. He's put this out on, on social media to sort of time and coincide with this. And 
as I say, I think we have to read this as a deliberate strategy by Moscow to uh, show that, appear to show, that's a crucial distinction, appear to show that it still has options available to it, namely full mobilisation. Uh, I'm sceptical that it would actually be able to do that, as I've talked about in the past, but nonetheless, they are trying to threaten this. Um, and and to try and make things uh, more challenging for Ukraine, which is having a mock referendum, as it were, because it certainly wouldn't be internationally uh, recognised, that would then say that if Ukraine were marching soldiers into these regions that are now Russia, that that was a, a declaration of war on, on Russia by the nature of, of, of crossing sovereign, I'm saying all of this in, in inverted commas, sovereign Russian territory. So... This is clearly, as I say, a deliberate shift in strategy in reaction to, no doubt, not only the Ukrainian successes on the battlefield, but these diplomatic knots that Russia is now finding itself in as a consequence of the international reaction to uh, its diminishing gains in Ukraine. So I think that is very significant. The other thing I just wanted to talk about was more in uh, the military Space, which is I've read two interesting things this morning. Uh, the first is an interesting piece of analysis in Foreign Policy magazine, which is talking about the uh, Ukrainian ability to adapt its war production in face of possible Russian attacks. Now, I've touched before on this area because one of the criticisms that some commentators have made of Ukraine is that they don't quite understand why a country that is at war is not has not done what countries did in the Second World War, say, and turn all of its factories into developing weapons. Now, um, there are numerous reasons for that, and this is what one of the articles that I read um, uh, goes into detail about, which is essentially the first point is that, of course, the Russian economy, the Ukrainian economy, forgive me, the Ukrainian economy needs to continue to, uh, uh, to be generating income. So that's one reason why you don't shut off all factories overnight. But more importantly, when it's obvious what, that you've got factories that are developing weapons, they are easy targets for uh, Russian attacks. So instead, what they've done is they've uh, developed a cutting edge defense industry that is far more robust and that is able to, uh, it, to quote the article, chug along and and it's it's operating not in terms of of these sort of big enormous factories imagining you use sort of the the production lines but much in smaller scale but far more of them in secure locations that mean that this production is able to happen more subtly and more in in a manner that is more difficult for the Russians to sabotage, essentially. So I thought that was very interesting because, as I say, it counters some of the charges that have been made by critics of Ukraine, but also shows how Ukraine has shown itself to be incredibly innovative and and ingenious, really, in how it has fought this war in a way that is far more flexible than, than Russia has been able to, to conjure in recent months. And finally, just one other interesting piece of analysis I was reading was about uh, the, uh, was a comment by a US Air Force commander for Europe, um, uh, which is General James Hacker. And he said that Ukraine, we now know, has shot down 55 Russian planes over the course of the war at least. 
And he says that the influence of this, of course, is that Russia were never able to gain air superiority. And as we've talked about on the podcast many times, and I'm sure Don will have some insights on this as well, air superiority is absolutely crucial for any offensive style uh, warfare. Indeed, it was the defining factor, arguably, in uh, the Battle of Normandy, which the Allies won uh, after the invasion of of Europe by the Allies in 1944. Um, The the air superiority was crucial in beating back um, the the German army, um, something that the the Allies never lost um, uh, once they had achieved it. And indeed, it was the same in the Battle of Britain earlier on in the war. And and the fact that Russia, you know, this enormous bear, this perception of this enormous armed forces that usually has always had numbers on its side. The fact that that, that on the aircraft side of things, it has never managed to achieve that invaluable air superiority speaks volumes as to why they are now struggling so much to to, um, not only hold on to the territory that they have... um, uh, that they managed to secure earlier on in the war, but also why in those early months as well they were never able to 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 uh, make perhaps some of the games that they sought to achieve, and that was because of the very successful way in which the Ukrainians again have fought the war. So two very interesting pieces of analysis there that I just wanted to highlight in the context of, of course, this broadly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive that we've now been discussing for for the last several weeks. Well, thank you very much, uh, Francis, Sue and Dom. I think we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So I'll just ask each of you just for your final thoughts. What should can, can we sum up what we've been talking about and what should our listeners be thinking about uh, as we go in as we go through this week? Um, Dom, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, I think eyes this week have to be on New York and the United Nations, the General Assembly there, and um, and the response that the issue of Ukraine and President Zelensky's address in particular uh, generates. So we should remember that, that through the UN in the early part of the war, that the, the Ukraine war or the invasion of Ukraine didn't get quite the attention you would you would hope from the international from the international body. And that's for a number of reasons, but for, for many many countries around the world, see the war as as quite distant, um, in many ways quite uh, irrelevant to them. They've got much more pressing concerns. So whilst they're they're aware of it and they might empathise with it, but it, they have much much uh, more pressing concerns that were demanding their time and time and attention. So didn't really get the diplomatic heft that it either needed or that that you know, those of us that want to see Russia push back across its borders um, would would uh, would demand. And of course, you've also got Russia's efforts to try and frame the, in particular, the the food supply issue, the grain issue, as as being at the as being the fault of Ukraine, as a, a cause of Ukraine's aggression and their belligerence. So, uh, many parts of uh, the global south, for example, have been courted by Russia with this idea of trying to to win them over, um, to um, to uh, if not support the war, but then support support their vote with their vote in the UN General Assembly. Um, and of course, Russia has also been trying to position this war as Russia versus, well, firstly, everybody else, but everybody else in the in the face of, of the West and NATO and US. And that also, there are many countries around the world that if they if they get swept along with that narrative, they, they, they might unconsciously think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not best bedfellows with the US, therefore I will 
I will tacitly support the other side. So very interesting to see the diplomatic action that's happened over the last seven months, that the, um, the cauldron for that is the United Nations. There is nowhere to hide now for Russia in terms of the atrocities we've seen in, in some of the liberated areas and the way they've prosecuted this war. So it'd be very interesting to see this, this week whether or not that has shifted the dial at all on the diplomatic front. We spoke earlier on about how those votes, some very surprising votes, those those people that might want to, if not vote, um, the, the way that Russia would, in support of um, of Russia's aims, in, i.e. turning turning down Zelensky's request to to address by video call, but so they if they either didn't vote against it, they would they would certainly Russia would hope that they would have abstained. So those that that didn't abstain actually voted for it. I mean that's that's quite telling. So it'd be very interesting to see this this week what how the diplomatic dial has shifted in in um, in the UN. Not so much from the from from those in the West and those really close to this, uh, and um, arguably from the the, the sort of the, um, the the global North. But it, we, we must wait to see what the view is from the body of the General Assembly, and particularly from the global South. Uh, Su Chan, would you like to just sum up some of the things you've been saying for our listeners? What should they be thinking about in the week in the weeks ahead? Certainly, my eyes will be on uh, more support for British households and businesses from the government. Um, and you know, we're expecting the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng to stand up on Friday and unveil you know a multi-billion uh, pound package of tax cuts in order to support the economy. And it is fair to say that Europe is facing a pretty bleak winter. Yes, some countries are ahead of target in terms of gas storage, but you know the risk of blackouts and rationing hasn't gone away, even though uh, energy prices have fallen in, in recent weeks. But that can change uh, day by day. So, you know... Um, Europe is going to be facing a tough time and in inflation across Europe is still you know, close to double digits, if not there already. But I think it's important to put it in context, whereas we're facing a bleak winter, perhaps a couple of them. Russia is definitely facing a bleak decade. You know, there are grand plans by the Kremlin to pivot you know, to pivot east. And some of that has been put in place. I mean, there is um, talk of uh, a new pipeline. When Vladimir Putin met Xi Jinping last week, they were talking about building the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline, which would run through Mongolia and, and send more of that Russian gas um, to China and away from, from Europe. But, you know, they've been talking about this t- since 2006. And construction isn't going to start till 2024. And that takes time. You know, also, um, Russia has been talking about issuing more of its debt uh, in the Chinese currency. A couple of companies have already done that. And it won't be too long before, you know, until the sovereign does that as Russia looks to China to to borrow from. Um, But as as we've seen through this crisis, you know, both both countries are interested in de-dollarization. But in a crisis which currency does everyone want? They want the dollar. And we've seen the dollar strengthen. So in terms of this pivot away, it is going to take time. And Russia is, you know, looking at a very bleak decade ahead where its options are limited. I mean, Xi Jinping and um, Vladimir Putin, they met this year, the Winter Olympics, where they declared in a seven page document, there are no limits to our relationship. But I think Vladimir Putin, certainly um, looking ahead, is finding there are limits, certainly to its relationship with China. Thank you very much. Francis Turney, would you like to go next? 
Thank you. Uh, yes, well, I alluded earlier on to the fact that yesterday was one of the biggest events in modern British history, which was the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Uh, the I was part of that. I was watching a speech that she gave in 1991 uh, in Washington when she addressed a joint session of Congress, the first British monarch to do so. Quite remarkable if one knows the history of the United States and, uh, and Great Britain. But she made some, I think, very prescient remarks there that I just wanted to quote. And she said, some people believe that power grows from the barrel of a gun. So it can. But history shows that it never grows well, nor for very long. Force, in the end, is sterile. We have gone a better way. Our societies rest on mutual agreement, on contract and on consensus. And I think that she sums up very well there the essence of the international contract, the one that was upheld in the West ever since the Second World War that is now currently at stake in Ukraine. So I thought on this historic week, I would give the last word to Her Majesty the Queen. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio and sign up to dispatches our ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox if you enjoyed this podcast please consider following ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app and if you have a moment leave a review as it helps others find the show you can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.